0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to Curtain Call, a podcast where we talk about Broadway musicals and their depictions of gender. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and I am so glad you decided to join me again. Let's get the show on the road. On last week's episode of Curtain Call, we started our discussion of Broadway musicals and their portrayal of gender in the 1950s with the 1949 smash hit Kiss Me Kate and the noteworthy 1957 production of My Fair Lady. This week, we will be talking about musicals from the 60s. The golden age of Broadway continued throughout the majority of the 1960s up until 1968, when the revolutionary musical Hair transitioned the industry into what is known as the contemporary age of musical theater. This time period extended well into the mid-1990s, so we will start our exploration of the contemporary age in next week's episode. As for today, we will be looking into two musicals that were produced prior to this transitional period in 1968. The first show being tackled is the critically acclaimed 1960 production of The Sound of Music, and the second is the 1965 crowd favorite, Fiddler on the Roof. While our discussion last week addressed the serious topic of misogyny, feminine transformation, and gender roles within a relationship, this week I hope to lighten the mood with a more progressive take on The Sound of Music and The Fiddler on the Roof. Since the musical's original stage production, The Sound of Music has been largely criticized for depicting a somewhat outdated storyline. Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote the musical just before the second wave of feminism and the women's rights movement started in the early 1960s. During such a progressive time, reviewers were baffled that the infamous writing team had created a show that seemingly encouraged stereotypical gender roles. For example, many were upset that the once carefree and wild governess Maria suddenly found her life's calling all because she fell in love with a man and wanted to care for his children. Additionally, the old-fashioned ideologies thrown about during the infamous number 16 going on 17 of a young woman needing a man who is older and wiser to tell her what to do didn't sit well with many audience members. Now this is definitely something that should be addressed but critics need to remember that the musical is based on the memoir written by and based upon the real Maria von Trapp's life. So yes, while Rodgers and Hammerstein took some artistic liberties within their production, the base storyline of Maria falling in love with Captain von Trapp is entirely based on a real-life romance. Because Fiddler on the Roof tells a more progressive story, the reception to this golden age musical was the antithesis to that of The Sound of Music. In Fiddler, the show starts in a town that literally only functions because of the strict gender roles put in place decades prior. But by the musical's end, many of these social constructs are broken. We'll explore this a bit later on in our discussion of Fiddler. But first, let's talk about The Sound of Music. As always, we are going to start the podcast with a plot summary of our musicals, starting with The Sound of Music. Set in Salzburg, Austria, just before World War II, nuns from the Nahnberg Abbey can be heard singing. Maria Rainer, one of the postulants, is on the nearby mountainside, regretting leaving the beautiful hills. She returns to the abbey late, where the mother abbess and other nuns have been considering what to do about the free spirit. Maria explains her lateness, saying she was raised on that mountain, and apologizes for singing in the garden without permission. The mother abbess, who recognizes Maria's eccentric personality, tells her that she should spend some time outside the abbey to decide whether she is suited for the monastic life. She has arranged for Maria to act as the governess to the seven children of the widower, Austro-Hungarian Navy submarine captain, Georg von Trapp. Upon arriving at the villa, Maria meets with Captain Von Trapp. He explains her duties and summons the children with a high-pitched whistle. The children rush from their rooms and march in, looking much like Navy soldiers in their matching uniform-like attire. Captain Von Trapp teaches Maria the children's individual signals on the whistle, but she openly disapproves of this militaristic approach, stating that, quote, "...whistles are for dogs and cats and other animals, but not for children and definitely not for me. It would be too humiliating." end quote. Once alone with the Von Trapp children, Maria breaks them out of their shells by teaching them the basics of music. Cue the classic musical number Do Re Mi. That evening, Rolf, a young messenger, delivers a telegram and then meets with the oldest child Liesel outside the villa. Because he is one year Liesel's senior, Rolf claims he knows what is right for her. The two kiss and in true teenager fashion, Rolf runs off and Liesel is left squealing with joy. Meanwhile, the housekeeper gives Maria material to make new clothes, as she had given all of her possessions to the poor. Maria sees Liesel slipping in through the window, wet from a sudden thunderstorm, but agrees to keep her secret. The other children are frightened by the storm, and to distract them, Maria sings The Lonely Goatherd. After a month-long trip to Vienna, Captain Von Trapp returns home with Baroness Elsa Schrader, and Max Detweiler, Captain Von Trapp's friend, who is also a music agent and producer. Elsa and Captain Von Trapp are presumably a couple, but Elsa tells Max that something is preventing the captain from marrying her. Rolf enters, looking for Liesl, and greets them with the heil, the Nazi salute. The captain orders him away, saying that he is an Austrian and not a German. Maria and the children leapfrog in, wearing play clothes that she made from the old drapes in her room. For some reason, this infuriates the captain, and he orders the children to go change. Maria tries to instill some compassion in the captain, saying the children need him to love them. He angrily orders her back to the abbey, but as she profusely apologizes, they hear the children singing The Sound of Music, which Maria had taught them to welcome Elsa. Surprisingly, the captain joins his children in song, and the family embraces. When alone with Maria, he thanks her for bringing music back into the household and asks her to stay. A party is thrown to introduce Elsa, and guests argue over the Nazi German annexation of Austria. During the celebration, Kurt, the youngest von Trapp boy, asks Maria to teach him to dance the Landler, a popular Austrian folk dance. When he fails to properly execute a complicated move, the captain steps in to demonstrate. He and Maria dance until they come face to face, and she breaks away, embarrassed and confused. Later, when discussing the expected marriage between Elsa, and the captain, Brigitte, the third youngest daughter, tells Maria she thinks the governess and the captain are really in love with each other. Before they are sent to bed, the children say goodnight to the guests with the song So Long, Farewell. Max is amazed at their talent and wants them for the Kaltzburg Festival, which he is organizing. As the guests leave for dinner, Maria slips out the front door with her luggage, planning to return to the abbey. Once there, Maria says that she is ready to take her monastic vows, but the mother abbess realizes that she is running away from her feelings. She tells Maria to face the captain and discover if they truly love each other, and tells her to search for it and find the life she was meant to live. End of Act 1, on to Act 2. Time has passed, and the captain soon tells his children that he has asked Elsa to marry him. They try to cheer themselves up by singing My Favorite Things, but are unsuccessful until they hear Maria singing on her way to rejoin them. Learning of the wedding plans, she decides to stay only until the captain can arrange for another governess. Max and Elsa argue with the captain about the imminent annexation of Austria, trying to convince him that it is inevitable. When he refuses to compromise on his opposition to it, Elsa breaks off the engagement. Alone, the captain and Maria finally admit their love and quickly get married. You moved a little fast there, captain, I won't lie. Tensions begin to as Herr Zeller, the leader of the Nazi party for the region, arrives at the villa and demands to know why the von Trapps are not flying the flag of the Third Reich now that the annexation has occurred. The captain and Maria return early from their honeymoon before the festival, but in view of the Nazi German occupation, the captain decides it's best the children not sing at the event. Rolf enters with a telegram that offers the captain a commission in the German Navy. And Liesel is upset to discover that her beau is now a full-blown Nazi. The captain consults with his new wife and decides they must secretly flee Austria. German Admiral von Schreiber arrives to find out why Captain von Trapp has not answered the telegram, explaining that the German Navy holds him in high regard and tells him to report immediately to assume command. Thinking quickly, Maria says that the captain cannot leave immediately, as they are singing in the festival concert, and the admiral agrees to wait. At the concert, after the von Trapps sing an elaborate reprise of Do Re Mi, Max brings out the captain's guitar. Captain Von Trapp sings Edelweiss as a goodbye to his homeland and as a way to declare his loyalty to the country. As the judges decide on prizes, the Von Trapp sings So Long, Farewell, secretly leaving the stage in small groups. Trying to stall as much as possible, Max announces the runners-up first. When the von Traps are awarded first prize, but they do not appear, the Nazis start a search. The family hides at the abbey, where one of the sisters tells them that the borders have been closed. Rolf discovers the family, and as he goes to call the lieutenant, he sees Liesel and changes his mind. The Nazis leave, and the von Traps flee over the Alps. Last week, during our first official episode, we talked extensively about the trope of the Cinderella-esque female transformation in Kiss Me Kate and My Fair Lady. And while Maria undergoes a makeover herself, I want to focus on Captain Von Trapp and his character development for our gender analysis today. On Curtain Call, we're here to talk about all types of gender and gender expressions, so I thought it'd be a nice change of pace to concentrate on the transformation of our leading male role. As discussed in New Keywords, a revised vocabulary of culture and society by writers Tony Bennett, Lawrence Grossberg, and Megan Morris, gender was not regarded as a social construct until the second wave of feminism, when used in sexology and psychoanalysis to describe male and female social roles. Being a social construct meant gender was something we created, something we associate certain characteristics, behaviors, and emotions with, something that we think is rigid and fixed. For example, when we think of stereotypical male attributes, We think strong, muscular, emotionally restrained, aggressive, the breadwinners. Women are often associated with being fragile, emotional, nurturing, submissive. Gender is also performative. It's something that we have to quote-unquote do constantly, whether we realize it or not. As Bennett, Grossberg, and Morris state, quote, Both masculinity and femininity are continually constructed and negotiated on an everyday basis. They're taken for grantedness, demonstrating just how successful gendering processes have been. Today, the conversation around gender as a social construct is extremely popular in both public discourse and academic scholarship. Many citizens are finding the courage to not only challenge these gender roles, but to play with their own gender expression. Unfortunately, the characters in The Sound of Music were not afforded this freedom. While some women continued to work well into the 1930s when the musical was set, the prevailing belief was that married women should not be working full-time jobs. According to a 1936 poll in Fortune magazine, which asked, Do you believe that married women should have a full-time job outside the home? Only 15% of the respondents approved. 48% disapproved, and the remaining 37% gave it conditional approval. Common arguments against married women working were that they were taking jobs away from men, that the women's place was in the home, and that children needed a mother at home full-time. Husbands were continually thought of as the breadwinner and patriarchal figure of the household. In The Sound of Music, we see these distinct and dated gender roles play out almost immediately, especially in Captain Von Trapp. As writer Sophia Fay states in her article titled, A Problem Like Maria, maybe just the opposite quote our first introduction to the captain conveys him as too rigidly male he's cold strict powerful and emotionally incompetent he carries his position as captain a traditionally masculine role over to his personal life and treats his children as if they were officers in his rank End quote. From the audience's perspective, we want the captain to be more emotionally warm and receptive to his children, especially given the somewhat recent loss of their mother. As Faye writes, quote, our discomfort with his overt masculinity makes his transformation so easy to root for, End quote. Throughout the musical, we get to witness Captain Von Trapp's transformation from a stone-cold, militant head of household into a loving, happy, even emotionally available father figure to his seven youngsters. To me, I get the sense that the captain initially felt comfortable performing these stereotypical masculine gender norms. It's familiar to him, and if I'm being quite honest, it was probably the only way he knew how to cope with and run his household after his wife died. In the past, his wife probably fulfilled her assigned and gender role by taking care of and raising the children on her own. Since her passing, the captain raised the kids the only way he knew how, in a militaristic way. He even says to Maria in Act 1, quote, you're right, I don't know my children, end quote. Once free from these constraints, he realizes the importance of family and the joys of living a life filled with happiness and music. As Fay says, quote, watching the captain open himself up to romantic and familial love and starting to sing again is one of the joys of the musical, end quote. While I was ecstatic to see the captain break from this obviously harmful gender role, this transformation would not be possible if Maria had not played the nurturing maternal figure. As previously mentioned, many critics were extremely frustrated with Maria's character development. A woman who starts off by being a quote-unquote problem with her rebellious and individualistic personality is turned into a cliche housewife to seven children, might I add. According to Faye, quote, While she originally stirs up trouble, she ultimately stabilizes the social order. The emotional transformation of the captain into a more loving and compassionate father and husband does not come at the expense of him losing power or control. So yes, while we do get to see progressive character development within a male-leading role, it must rely on the female principal character to conform to the stereotypical social norms of the time. Like I said, this would be a slightly more liberal episode. As we move on to Fiddler on the Roof, I want to point out that love and marriage play a big role in this week's episode. Unlike The Sound of Music, where, as we just saw, the leading female character must abide by gender roles, the women of Fiddler on the Roof are the ones tearing down these socially constructed barriers. For a musical set in an early 20th century Russian town, the plot of Fiddler on the Roof is rather modern. Anatevka, a small Jewish town, is home to Tevye, a poor milkman who is married to his wife Goldie and who lives with his five daughters. In the opening scene, Tevye tells the audience of the villagers' customs through the infamous opening number, tradition. Life here is as precarious as a fiddler on the roof, Tevye says, yet through their traditions the villagers endure. As the family prepares for the sabbath dinner, Yenta, the town's matchmaker, arrives to tell Goldie that Lazar Wolf, the wealthy butcher, a widower older than Tevye, wants to marry Seidel, her eldest daughter. Hodel and Hava, the next two daughters, are thrilled by Yenta's visit. But Seidel warns how matchmaking could have bad results. A poor girl like her must take whatever husband Yenta picks. But Seidel is secretly in love with her childhood friend and the local tailor Modal, who is yet to ask Tevya for her hand. As Tevya makes his deliveries in town, he asks God what harm there would be if he were a rich man. During his outing, he meets Perchik, a radical and student from Kiev. Tevya instantly takes a liking to the young man, inviting him home for the Sabbath meal, even offering him food and a room in exchange for tutoring his two youngest daughters. Once home, Goldie tells Tevya to meet Lazar after the Sabbath, but does not tell him why, knowing that her husband does not like Lazar-Wolf. Seidel worries that Yenta will find her a husband before Modal asks her father for her hand. Model, in addition to being poor, is afraid of Tevya's temper and wants to follow tradition. Before he plucks up the courage to ask Tevye to marry Seidel, Model aspires to buy a new sewing machine to show that he can support a wife. After the Sabbath, Tevye meets Lazar for a drink under the wrong assumption that Lazar wants to buy his cow. Once the misunderstanding is cleared up, Tevye agrees to let Lazar marry Seidel. On his way home, Tevye runs into the Russian constable, who has jurisdiction over the Jews in town. The constable warns him that there is going to be a little unofficial demonstration in the coming weeks. This is a euphemism for a minor pogrom, or a violent riot particularly aimed at the massacre or expulsion of Jewish people. While the constable has sympathy for the Jewish community, he is ultimately powerless in preventing the violence. The next day, Tevya announces that he has agreed that Seidel will marry Lazar Wolf. And while Goldie is overjoyed, her eldest daughter is devastated, begging her father not to force her. Modal arrives at the family's home to ask for Seidel's hand in marriage. The two have already given each other a pledge to marry, and Modal promises she will not starve as his wife. Very romantic. Outraged and stunned by this breach of tradition, Tevya must do some soul searching before he finally agrees to let them marry. But how will Tevya break the news to his wife? That night, Tevya fabricates a nightmare in which Goldie's grandmother and Lazar Wolf's late wife, Fru threaten to curse Seidel if she marries the wealthy butcher. The superstitious Goldie believes this is a sign and agrees to the match. Seidel and Model's wedding day soon arrives, but the celebration ends abruptly when a group of Russians ride into the village to perform the demonstration. They disrupt the party, damaging the wedding goods, and wreak even more destruction in the village. Tevya instructs his family to clean up the mess, and this is how Act 1 ends. Meanwhile, Tevya's second daughter, Hodel, has fallen in love with the radical teacher Perchik. Like her older sister, Hodel breaks tradition by telling Tevya she loves Perchik and that they will be married, asking only for his blessing and not his permission. Once more, Tevye must question his devotion to tradition, but ultimately, he relents. The world is changing, and he must change with it. When explaining these events to an astonished Goldie, Tevye states, quote, Love, it's the new style, end quote. The couple contemplates their own arranged marriage and love for each other after 25 years in the song, Do You Love Me? Perchik must leave for Kiev soon to work for the revolution, but he promises to send for Hodel in the near future. News spreads quickly in the village that he has been arrested and exiled to Siberia. Determined to support her new husband, Hodel decides she must be with her beloved, a decision her father eventually supports. As the weeks pass, Tevya's third daughter, Hava, has fallen in love with Fedka, a young Russian villager who is also a Christian. She pleads with her father to be allowed to marry him, but marrying outside the Jewish faith is a line Tevya will not cross, and he forbids her to see him again. The next day, Hava and Fedka secretly elope, and Hava is disowned by her family. Rumors begin to spread that the Russians are planning on expelling Jews from their villages. While the villagers are gathered, the constable tells everyone that they have three days to pack their belongings and leave Anatevka. In shock, they reminisce about their little village and how hard it will be to leave what has been their home for so long. Hava and Fedka come to say goodbye and make peace, but Tevya still refuses to speak with his daughter. Seidel wishes her well before they all depart, her and Modell leaving for Poland, while Tevya, Goldie, and their youngest daughters leave for America. The fiddler begins to play and he follows the family out of the village. I want to start our discussion of gender in Fiddler on the Roof by breaking down the opening number, Tradition, as I think it will help us better understand how drastically the family's attitudes towards gender roles shift from the show's beginning to its end. The musical opens with a lonely fiddler playing a plucky tune from a rooftop in Anatovka. Tevya enters and tells the audience that every villager is like that fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. Yes, it is dangerous, so how do they keep a healthy balance? Simple through tradition. The orchestra kicks in and the ensemble joins Tavia on stage as they sing about the sets of culturally defined behaviors each villager carries out. The chorus of old men begin the song by belting in a low tone. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed a wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? The Papa! Next, the mamas take over, daintily singing Who must know the way to make a proper home A quiet home, a kosher home We must raise a family and run the home So Papa's free to read the holy book The mama, the mama Tradition In a forceful manner, the sons then chant At three I started Hebrew school At ten I learned a trade for me, I hope she's pretty. Leaving the daughter's last to trill. And who does mama teach to and and tent and fix? Preparing me to marry whoever papa picks. As we saw when discussing the plot, these familial roles are disrupted rather quickly when Seidel violates tradition by choosing to marry her poor friend, Modal, rather than the village matchmaker's choice of the wealthy Lazar Wolf. For someone who has never questioned the town's traditions, it is difficult for Tevia to accept his daughter's outright rejection of them. Nevertheless, he digs down deep within himself and agrees to let her marry Modal. Now, if doing this once wasn't hard enough for the fortuneless milkman, Tevia's other daughters also outwardly defy tradition when they decide to marry for love rather than financial comfort. In an article titled, Transforming Tradition Mission, love, marriage, and autonomy, from Fiddler on the Roof to modern-day India, Joseph Gindi talks about Tevya's initial reluctance to change and his ultimate acceptance when he writes, quote, Although this represents a challenge to the tradition that Tevya holds so dear, he eventually recognizes that respecting his daughter's desires is part of living in a changing world, end quote. Through these conversations about true love, it's clear that, in addition to Tevya and Goldie learning from their children, Seidel, Hodel, and Hava also learn from their parents' relationship. In a recent review of the 2019 Yiddish revival of Fiddler, writer Madeline Kearns says, quote, Tevye's daughters encourage him to reconsider many things associated with tradition that he had taken for granted. In the duet with his wife Goldie, Tevye asks her, do you love me? Goldie is taken aback by this question. She has to think about it. She answers, for 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years my bed is his if that's not love what is the answer to do you love me becomes I suppose I do end quote the couple must learn by their daughter's example Kearns continues stating that love benefits from affection not just duty while the three eldest daughters teach their parents about the new liberal ways of marriage they in turn learn something as well as Kearns writes quote love involves sacrifice It isn't always sentimental, it's mostly about doing what's right by the other person. End quote. The daughter's advocacy for agency over who they love was an extremely progressive move during a time when conventional gender roles governed the town. This deviation from tradition was not too radical, though. As Eileen Jacobson writes in her article Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish and Feminism, quote, By the standards of 1905, and especially in a remote Russian village, these developments were revolutionary, and the two older girls are grateful for the results. It is clear, however, that they will continue to do the baking and the cleaning and the child-rearing, though maybe not with their husbands always in charge. Even Hodel, who marries a left-leaning activist and is portrayed as being sharply intelligent, accepts the ideas of her husband Perchek, who is a teacher. The traditional power structure of their marriage was there from the start. Would it have hurt the production team to inject a few more modern glimmers of female independence, Jacobson argues? They are creating their show at about the same time that Betty Friedan was writing The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963." I have to agree with Jacobson's reasoning here. When so much of the storyline is about women advocating for themselves in a changing world, it would have been nice for the musical to incorporate some other feminist themes. In the early 60s, the nuclear family was beginning to break down, and women were no longer confined to the domestic sphere. Many men were uncomfortable with this sudden change, much like Tevye's discomfort with the breaking of tradition. But household duties were starting to get split somewhat evenly between both heads of house, and oftentimes, both parents would work. To me, I think audience members would have appreciated watching the three eldest daughters continue to exhibit their individualistic personalities into their marriages, not putting up with the stereotypical power structures, society, enforces. I mean, hey, you already fought to marry who you'd like, Why not fight for more agency within the relationship as well? Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the third installment of Curtain Call. Next week, we'll move into the contemporary age of Broadway to talk about musicals from the 1970s. This decade brought us memorable productions such as The Chilling Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, The Sweet Annie, and The Dazzling A Chorus Line. Stick around to hear what's coming up next week on Curtain Call. Interestingly, the two musicals we will be discussing in our upcoming episode of Curtain Call bookend the 1970s decade. The 1971 Stephen Sondheim hit, Company, will be our first point of discussion. Pardon me, is everybody here? Because if everybody's here, I want to thank you all for coming to the wedding. I'd appreciate you going even more. I mean, you must have lots of better things to do and not a word of it to Paul. Remember, Paul, you know the man I'm going to marry, but I'm not because it wouldn't ruin anyone as wonderful as he is. Thank you all for the gifts and the flowers. Thank you all. Now it's back to the showers. Don't tell Paul, but I'm not getting married today. Whereas Evita, the 1980 Tony Award winner for Best Musical, will be analyzed second. Don't cry for me, Argentina The truth is I never left you All through my wild days, my mad existence I kept my promise don't give your distance. To give you a sneak preview of our conversation about gender, our discussion of company revolves around society's double standards for men and women in regards to relationships and marriage, while our analysis of Evita primarily focuses on musicals narrated through a male gaze. That's a wrap on today's podcast. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and thank you again for tuning into Curtain Call. Curtain Call is available through the Apple Podcasting app and Spotify. New episodes are uploaded every Friday afternoon. We'll see you next week.